Welcome to Grace Covenant Church, D.C. You're listening to our weekly sermon podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this message. Great to see your faces. Today we are beginning a new series, and it's based on Psalm 145, verse 4. What you have done will be praised to the next generation. They will proclaim your mighty acts. Psalm 145, verse 4. What you have done will be praised to the next generation. From one generation to the next. From one generation to the next. Everybody say, from one generation to the next. What you have done will be praised from one generation to the next. They will proclaim your mighty acts. Father, we love you this morning because of your love for us. Help us be that generation. Amen. This month, our series will focus on generational transfer. And so this verse is significant. David, a man who we read about in the Bible, wrote Psalm 145. And that's one of the verses from the entire song. He wrote it in the latter years of his life as he was transitioning from being the leader of the nation of Israel to his son, Solomon, who would be the next leader from the next generation. But it's a transfer not just from one man to another man, not just from a father to a son, uh, not just from one leader to the next leader, but it's really from one generation to another generation, from one people to another people. And what I'm encouraged by is that David makes this proclamation. What you have done, his references to God, not himself, over the span of his life, the entirety, as he would reflect, he could see all that God had done, and it gave cause for praise, even as we praise this morning. So he says, what you have done, it didn't begin with me, and it won't end with me, but what you have done will be praised from one generation to the next. And he was very careful to make sure that what God had deposited in him from the previous generation would not die with him, but go to the next generation. And so that's the series. And I was looking and giving thought to generational transfer. And one picture comes to mind with respect to building. In about the year AD 1000, the millennium turn over a thousand years ago, these massive, beautiful, ornate structures were built throughout Europe. Cathedrals. When a cathedral was built, if you've ever been to Europe and walked into these places, they are amazing. They have these enormous uh, ceilings, which when you walk in, is to draw your soul away from everything that's common and make you look toward heaven. That's why they were built so high. And there was a place of worship that you would, you would experience there. And so cathedrals were built all over Europe. Now, it would take thousands of laborers to build a single uh, cathedral. Many of those laborers were family members. So you would have uh, parents working with their children. It would take, in many instances, a full century to build one cathedral, which means the generation that started would not live to see its completion. But there would be a point as one generation is building that as they begin to marry and begin to have children and families were, uh, were, were growing in the community, that when your children were a certain age, they began to build with you on that wall. 
And so you'd have one generation building with the next generation. And time would pass, and now you'd have three generations. So you'd have grandparents, and then the parents, and then the children, all building together on the wall, doing life together as family, but also working together, building, and watching one generation perhaps die, and then when the, the, the senior member becomes the elder and the next one becomes married, maybe the great-grand never met the great-grandparent, but hears stories about the experiences of how we learned to build together, how we learned to lay that brick. We didn't figure this out on our own. It was handed down. It was transferred. And I wonder what the conversation would have been like as they're on the wall. I imagine if we were on the wall today, one generation would like, close your phone, pay attention, put that app away. But there'd be this thing of how we build from one generation to another. It wasn't just a handoff. There's a period where we're building together. David did not have the privilege of building the temple for God. Understand that for a long period of time, hundreds of years, God's people were without a specific building for worship. In fact, God had never even asked them to do one. The entirety of the time that they were in the wilderness under the leadership of Moses, they wandered from 40 years setting up and breaking down a tent. You talk about set up and breakdown, which we've done for 20 years, somebody. Amen. 20 years. 20 years we have been meeting in elementary schools and the YMCA and hotels and all these places. And every place we meet, it requires People, lots of people arriving early, staying late, setting up, breaking down, doing it together, doing life together. And some of the places where we do it on Sunday morning, how many of you serve on a Sunday? Just raise your hand if you serve on a Sunday. Look across the room. So there are people who come in to set up. There are people who come in to greet. There are people who come in to do all kinds of things on Sunday morning for our weekly gathering. We've been doing this for 20 years. Can you imagine what it's like to build across generational lines and to see something handed down. It's interesting. We had a moment yesterday at Chris Boston's home. It was uh, a gathering of men. And uh, even prior to that moment, a few of us were on the phone on Friday, and we were just talking about men in general and then men in our church. And there's an encouragement. There's an inspiration, especially from those of us who've been here a minute. Some have been here from the very beginning, 20 years. Some have come along the way. But we kind of reflect on our moments as men, and there's a, a fellowship. There's a bond of what was built in us while we were building. The, true, the same is true for women in the church as well. Same is true for youth in the church. And while we were in this meeting yesterday, there was a young man who began to speak, and he's from the next generation, if you will. And he said, when I arrived at Grace Covenant Church, I'd only heard the stories about how uh, Pastor D used to be on the setup team. <laughs> That's what it is now, history, right? I heard the stories about the men back in the day and what they would do together, but I only saw it, and then I, I began to get involved, but I, I only heard the stories. I, I didn't share that experience in the same way, and it was great because the conversation wasn't just about setup. It was about the camaraderie. It was about the fellowship. It's about what men share with one another and when there was transfer from one generation to another and how that happened, and it was so encouraging, and so... Uh, I, I just, I think about that and I'll just say it here. Even though Grace Covenant Church was established 20 years ago, my wife and I with a handful of others in this church were sent to start this church of which we had been a part for 15, 20 years before that. We were kids. 
I was like 18, 19. And that church that sent us Grace Covenant in Northern Virginia started on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. And over time, we moved from place to place. The whole idea about hotels is not original. When I showed up, we were meeting in a hotel. And I think the year or two before, they had been meeting at Heinz Junior High School. So when I joined, when God joined me, shall I say, because you join Costco, but God joins you to the church. It's two different things. You, you can... You can you can choose today to be a part of Costco, and, and you should if, just for the chocolate cake alone. But, but you can't choose to join the church. God has to join you. That's a supernatural thing. You can walk in and go, oh, I like this church. Yes, but there has to be something that resonates inside you that says, God has joined me to this people. This is my family. And sometimes you know it the first day you walk in. Sometimes you know it a year later. And like every family, none are perfect. Mine isn't, ours isn't, but we got a great father who loves us. And the whole thing about being people with a heart for God and God's heart for people doesn't start with us being people with a heart for God. It starts with God's heart for us, God's heart for others, God's heart for me. And when you become inundated, full, overwhelmed with God's heart for you personally, with God's heart for us, you cannot help but say what you have done begins to be the overflow and the praise to others, even the next generation. So when I became a part of this church, Grace Covenant, before Grace Covenant Church DC existed, I was in what is now Grace Covenant, Virginia. I was there, my wife was there, Louis, Michelle were there, Horace, Wendy were there, Joan Lindo was there, I know there are more. We were all part of the team that was sent. You should have seen us when we were, we were 20 years old, we were 25, growing up. we started when we were 18, 19, 20. By the time I was 30 something, then they said, we're gonna send you out. I remember them praying for us. Oh, God, have mercy on them. They have no idea what they're getting into. I'm like, why are you praying like that? You know? We're already scared. <laughs> I didn't want to do this to begin with. I could be a lawyer right now. Ha! And she's going to pray, oh, God, help them. Oh, God. I just saw a picture. I just saw, like, it just looked like trouble everywhere. <laughs> Wait, is that supposed to be a word of encouragement? <laughs> but we went because God sent us. And I'm so glad God sent us for 20 years. I get to look out and see what God has done. And I'm only building a section on the wall. There are those who come before. We stand on Grace Covenant Chantilly. The reason why that young man came and saw me on the setup team with the other men was because before this church got started, Pastor Brad Fuller, who oversees all our churches in North America, I served with him on the setup team in D.C., Pastor Brett came in and rolled up his sleeves, and that's what the men do. So I rolled up my sleeves, so we set up everything that it took to set up. We ran the wires, we turned on the mics, we did this, and all the women, everybody was serving. We had to put up the screens. We had to do it every week, and we had to get up early to do it. And things were not stored on site in those days. Let me be careful, because then you start sounding like that generator. We had to walk seven miles up the hill both ways. But it... it so, so there was the setting up every Sunday, getting up at five or six in the morning, and even in the winter, going to the storage facility, putting it in a van, and then bringing it, and then setting it up. 
And then during the week, we had a small group. Sometimes it was on Sunday. And our small group was 15, 20 people at one time. And Pastor Brett was our small group leader. And then there was Sunday. So there was the serving. There was a small group. And there was Sunday. And then there was the serving. There was a small group. And there was a serving. And Sunday. You see, these were scheduled moments. But outside those scheduled moments, we did life together, which was far more spontaneous. In the car, things were caught, riding on the back seat. When he proposed to his wife, and I saw how they related, it wrote something on me as a young man who grew up in a house who only had a mom in the house and a dad across town first time that's what marriage looks like started writing things on my hard drive that's called generational transfer it wasn't words it was just being in their home generational transfer happens on Sunday it happens while you're serving it happens in small groups it happens spontaneously while you're just writing so I set up when this church started because I set up with Pastor Brett so what one generation does you teach the other generation and it's handed down Isn't that good? And so this is what happens. And you need to be serving somewhere. You need to be in a small group somewhere. You need to be here on Sunday. Not just because it's, 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 what we should do, but it's because how we do life together. It's how, when you serve, it's not just that you're serving. Most of us didn't want to get up there early on a Sunday, but when we were together, brothers dapping one another up, laughing, talking about each other, laughing each other's shoes and doing what men do arguing about who's going to win the NBA this year or the, the Super Bowl. But then while you're showing it, one much hey, dude, you're late, man. We were here. You need to show up. So you learn to be faithful. Yeah. But then you also come to set up. How you doing, man? Wash your face so long. My dad's got surgery. We stop and we all pray together. And before you know it, years have gone by and you've done life with people. You've become people's godparents and you, you, you're like, how did all this happen? We've been building on this cathedral, this wall. Yeah. And there's a rope tied to you to the next person. And because this person has missions in their heart, they put missions in my heart, and I put missions in your heart. So guess what we do? We go on missions around the corner, around the country, around the globe. And there's that moment where you go, why do I have to do this? When it shifts for you to, oh, God, I get to do this, you know you've become, you've entered into it. I stood on the outside. I sat in the back when I first showed up. I didn't want to be in the middle of it. When Pastor Vincent Den, who we sent to be in Arizona, invited me to be on the setup team, I was like, no. I'm coming here to worship. I'm not coming here to set up. Because in those days, I didn't know that setting up was worship. That's generational transfer. Did you get that? Setting, serving is worship. Serve the Lord with gladness, not sadness, not madness. Worship team worships every Thursday night. And then they come in there and labor. And we clap and we thank God. But they have to leave work and they got to find parking and they got to do all this stuff. Why? To glorify God. I'm just saying. Here's a man who understood generational transfer. His name's Paul. He wrote most of what is the New Testament inspired by the Holy Spirit. Two letters. Um to a young man named Timothy who was like a son to him. Not biologically, but spiritually, he's like a son. That's what I am in my relationship with Pastor Brett. Biologically, he's not even old enough to be my father. There's five years between us. I was 19 when we met. He was 24, but he became my spiritual father. Because spiritual father is not about time. It's placement of someone in your life. And what they can deposit into you. And I'm grateful. Because he just took me along with him. And I had no idea where going along with him was going to lead to. I certainly didn't think it was going to lead to this. Here's a young man who got carried along. In 2 Timothy 
chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. This is Paul in his letter to his son in the Lord, Timothy. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Can you hear his heart? The second letter to Timothy is his last letter to Timothy. He's at the end of his life. They have done life together for a very long time. We believe Paul is probably in his 60s at this time. And he's encouraging him, be strong. But he's not asking him to be strong in and of himself or in human effort, but be strong in the grace that is in Christ. In other words, Paul himself had learned that true strength comes from receiving something from God, not from achieving something on your own. And he had generally, generationally deposit that into him. So Timothy knows what he's talking about. But he's not interested in just Timothy. He says, what you have heard, what you've seen in me, in the presence of many witnesses, you know my manner of life. I've lived this way privately. I've lived this way publicly. It occurs to me that on Sunday, I come into a room, and a lot of people don't know me personally or know me from a distance. But there are those like a Chris Boston, like a, like a, a Brandon, who was right there a moment ago, and many others like, who know me privately. They, they've been in my house. They've seen me with my kids. They see me at my best. They see me when I've not been at my best, and they're still here. So they know the difference between someone who is speaking words and someone who's living them. And so that's important that you have people in your life like that who are close enough to you. He says, these things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be able to teach others. He's thinking, he's living generationally. God deposited something in Paul. But Paul had others who poured into him. Young cat named Ananias. Laid hands on him, something like scales fell off his eyes. He looked at him, baptized him in water. He got filled with the Holy Spirit. He got changed. And Ananias was not a pastor. He was a disciple, someone who was in the church, setting up on Sunday. Pray for who would become the leader in the church. You'd be surprised who God's using you to impact. So in this moment, he's thinking, what you got for me? What, what I got from Ananias, what's happened over these years of my life, interacting with Peter, James, and others, what has been depositing you when we've been together, me, you, and Silas, when you saw me in prison, when you were standing next to me in court, everything while building on the wall, give that to reliable people. Entrust it to them so that they can teach others. This thing, this building needs to go on. And I'm about to exit stage right off the wall. But the building has to keep going. So that's one thing he says. And we're going to come back to that at another point. Not necessarily today. Here's what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience. As night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears, Timothy. I long to see you. Come on, these are men talking about tears. That's brotherly love. You ever see dudes at the NFL after the game hugging each other, tears rolling? Hardened, big dudes. Like, Listen, I'm the character coach for the University of Maryland, right? So Bruno, uh, going back to Des Wells, these, are, these dudes, when they walk out, they're like, they can dunk from the foul line, you know? But I meet with them one-on-one. That's the deep. Man, my grandmother. They, they, tears streaming down. You'll never see them like that on the court. But off court, privately, this is, they're, they're, they're 17, guys. Come on. 
Y'all there? He says, recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. So in Acts 16, we have this moment where Paul is going on a missionary journey. He's stopping off at places. Goes to Lystra, Derby, Iconium, all these places. Well, when he gets to Lystra, that's where he's introduced to Timothy. And everybody speaks well of Timothy. He's uh, ethnically diverse within himself. He's got a Jewish mom, a Greek dad, uh, which is why even though he was born Jew because the dad was Greek, he wasn't circumcised like all Jews were. And um, his mom's a believer. There's no mention of his dad being a believer. Some of you are in situations where one of you is a believer. Something's not. It can still produce a Timothy. It can still produce a Samantha. It can still produce a Michelle. It can still produce. You might have parents and neither one of them are believers. I'm sorry. God's bigger than that. So anyway, you have this beautiful picture where um, he is talking about generationally what has been deposited in Timothy through his natural lineage and a spiritual inheritance, and also what has come through the relationship that's become like a father-son with Paul and Timothy. Chris Boston is like a son to me. I'm pausing during the years in my head to say biologically I'm old enough to be his dad. Barely, barely. There's a bigger gap in age between me and, 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 and him than me and Pastor Brett. Five years, Pastor Brett, not biologically. Between me and you, he's in his 40s, I'm in my 50s. So I just trying to do the math. Sorry. Um, I was always better at literature anyway. Anyway, so that's not my point. The point is there was something I I was referencing Chris because before the first service came to me and said, Graham, man, I got to tell you what she told me. When he says Graham, he's talking about his grandmother. I met her. I've been in the same room with her. Watch her worship God. Beautiful elderly woman. Graham's old school. Loves God. She's from that generation. When Chris and I met, he was a student at Howard University playing football. We sat in his room, and there was a moment after meeting a few times where he counted the cost and said, I'm ready now for Jesus to be Lord of my life. And we rejoiced together. But that encounter was not his first encounter or the first moment that something was happening with God at work in his life. It goes all the way back to Graham Graham. Goes back. So... Paul is aware of what happened with Lois, what happened with Eunice. There's a faith. It's in you. Some of you worried about your kids. I'm sorry. It's generationally. They can't outrun it. It's in their DNA. It's in there. It was in your grandmom. It's in your mom. He says, and I'm certain that it's in you. You got it honest. Listen, you look in the mirror. You look at your parents. You got it honest. Why am I this tall? You got it honest. Why am I this smart? You got it honest. Things I got from my dad that are great. Things that I got from my dad, not great. But then you meet Pastor Brett, and all of a sudden, he becomes my Paul. And I'm like Timothy. And we're going on all these journeys. Don, you're going with me. Here, we're going to Vietnam. What? what, what? We're, we're going to Manila, Philippines. Or we're going, you're just going for the ride, but you don't realize there's deposits that are happening. Now, we in this moment could not express, because of time and also lack of knowledge, all that was transferred to Paul and then from Paul to Timothy. But I just want to mention one thing that Paul 
transferred to Timothy that didn't begin with them. All right? So this is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. This is a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. This is Paul speaking of himself in a letter to his son in the Lord. Who tells their son in the Lord, <laughs> of all sinners, I'm the worst? There's nothing, in him that's try- There's nothing in him that's trying to make the young man who he's fathering think uh, uh, a certain way about him. He, he, he's going, I'm the worst. I'm the worst. But, verse 16, but for this very reason, I was shown mercy. I was shown mercy. I'm the worst of sinners, but I was shown mercy. So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience. Has anybody experienced the patience of God in their life? As an example to those, next generation, what you have done will be praised. One generation to the next. So this is what's happening here. Might be displayed his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, and invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. There's not enough time to unpack all of this, but here's what I want you to take away. One thing that happened generationally in the transfer while they were building on the wall. By the way, it's important to say that what's being built is not a cathedral. It's important to note that the emphasis of when David realized, I'm not the one to build a a temple or a house for God, but my son will. When God said to David, you won't build me a house, but your son will, and he'll be on the throne forever. There is something we do when the word of God comes to us. A.W. Tozer said it this way. You I can't say it better than him. God knows I can't, so I'm going to read it to you. To admit that there is one who lies beyond us, who exists outside of all our categories, who will not be dismissed with a name, who will not appear before the bar of our reason, nor submit to our curious inquiries. This requires a great deal of humility, more than most of us possess. So we save face by thinking God down to our level or at least down to where we can manage him. This is where reflection on God, just your brain goes tilt and you're better off with devotion instead of reflection. Those aren't my words, those are somebody else's. But why do I mention this in this moment? Because the house that God said he would build, what God does in you personally, the word of the Lord, Sometimes that word is really globally. What God does in you in the moment might be for the millennial. And, but we can't comprehend that. We, we, our minds can process at best maybe seven generations. But God's word is spoken. It's eternal. So we go, oh, he must mean this. And we stop where our brains go. But the infinite God keeps going. Now hear this in context. When David was excited about his son Solomon building, he gave him instructions, do it this way, do this, do this, and it was all going to be good. Great. But God wasn't speaking merely about Solomon. Because in the New Testament, Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church, my house. And since Jesus is a descendant of David, 
And since Solomon died and God said, your son will be on the throne forever, the ultimate reference wasn't to Solomon, it was to Jesus. And that means Jesus is the one who is building the house. And then that means we who are part of the house aren't just on the wall, we're in the wall. It's one thing to be on the wall. It's another thing to be a stone that Jesus has actually put in the wall. We're his house that is being built globally and universally across generations. And what one happens in one generation gets passed down. So that mercy that Paul received from God and began to praise what you have done, merciful God, will be praised to Timothy and beyond. Didn't start with Paul. Didn't start with Ananias. Didn't start with, it goes all the way back to the moment in the garden. That's when he was building. Permit me to go a little bit longer this morning so that you might have opportunity to praise God before you leave. One more time. In the moment, you need to read James 2.13. We don't have time to put it on the screen. Yeah, put it on the screen just for a second. You need to see it. You need to see it. James 2.13, because this is a keeper. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. The conviction? Raise your hand if you feel conviction. So any, if I'm upset with my wife, and if I find my posture moving in judgment toward her, I hope James 2.13 is written on my hard drive so that it meters my response. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. So those who are merciful actually obtain merciful, mercy. Anybody want to obtain mercy? You have to be merciful. How, do you, how can you be merciful? Because you know you've received it. If you've received mercy from God, you can give it. If you haven't received it, all you can give is judgment. Now, judgment's not a bad thing. God is a judge. But it says mercy triumphs over judgment. Here we go. Love this. The first man, first woman, experienced judgment as a result of them moving the, the cataclysmic shift from being God-centered to being self-centered. Let's not make this about fruit on a tree. This is about my will over his. It's always about a will. That's why all your arguments, you go, I don't know what we were arguing about. It was about your will. It wasn't about the issue. The issue isn't fruit. The issue is who do you obey? And they decided we will obey ourselves. But in so doing, obeyed Satan and worshiped him. So here comes God walking in the cool of the day. Father, not running, not mad. He had foreknowledge of this moment. That makes my brain go tilt. That he knew we would fall and made us anyway. If you know someone's going to commit adultery, do you still marry them? Making it plain. God knows we're going to cheat on him, and he makes us anyway. He comes walking in the cool of the day. Judgment. Man, pain in your work, in your labor. Woman, pain in your childbirthing labor. But after the judgment, what does he do next? He takes animal skins, which means a sacrifice, and he clothes them. And his mercy triumphs over his judgment. David taught Solomon about, son, I committed adultery. I had your mom's husband killed to cover it up. And God sent the prophet Nathan to say, you're the man. 
you've done this. And what I concealed, God brought out in the light and made it public. And I'm experiencing the consequences of it. But at the same time, I've cried out to God. And Nathan said, God says, you will not die. And God had mercy on him. Do you not think that David wrote a praise song about the mercy of God and taught his son about it? I don't know about you, but in my life. And then Paul talked about how I was a reviler, a blasphemer. I tried to put an end to the church until I was struck down. And and God showed me mercy and now allows me to suffer for him preaching this gospel to the nations. I got a girl pregnant when I was 17. Wouldn't have anything to do with her or our son for seven years. But God showed me mercy. That's what my children know. That's what the men and women who walk with me know. And there's no longer shame because with the judgment, and there were consequences, paying child support, he had a mustache and a beard. (laughs) That's what happens when you start at seven. (laughs) And the courts don't mandate it, but your pastor says, here's how you're going to father him, and the money is only part of it. The court system does not cause you to father. And so I've told all the men and women I work with, this is where God's had mercy on me. So I end with my praise and giving you an opportunity to praise. Can you think of maybe one instance in your life where judgment was there and present and yet God's mercy triumphed over judgment in your life? Can you think of one? Can you think of one? Raise your hand if you can think of one instance. Can anybody think of two moments in your life where God had mercy on you? Can anybody think of three moments where he had mercy? Do I see four? Five. I see that hand. There's five, ten over there, fifteen. Do I see another hand? Twenty. Anybody want to go for a thousand moments where he had mercy? Can I get a thousand? Can I get a thousand? A thousand going once, going twice. Five thousand. Sold to the woman on the left. Can I get ten thousand? Can I get a hundred thousand? Can I get one point five million times? Is his mercy new every morning? You can thank him right now. You can thank him right now. You can thank him right now. His mercy triumphs over judgment. That's what I got as a generational transfer. God put that in me and I put it in the next generation. What you have done, what you have done, God, will be praised one generation to the next. Who's on keys today, Reuben? You gotta serve somewhere. You gotta get in small groups somewhere. You gotta show up Sunday. Those are the scheduled moments. But then you have to have all the spontaneous moments in between those moments. You need scheduled and spontaneous. God weaves them together and allows you to be in the wall. What have you got from the generation before you and what are you giving to the next generation? I received your mercy. I'm going to praise you for it and give it to you. It's not the words I say. It's not the words you say. It's something on the inside of you is expressed. And in the presence of God, you experience, you kind of go, ooh. We get to experience it together. This is who we are. This is who we are.
may this generation praise you to the next generation. May we regard what you've given us in the previous generation. Even if they grew up in a different time period and they're not good with social media. But, but there's something on deposit in them that we need from Graham. Something we need from Graham. Don't kick Graham to the curb because you're going to be Graham. You're going to be Graham. Take all you can get from Graham and then give it. And let this thing keep going. And at the end of all time, when God summons us home, we'll go, you in the wall? I'm in the wall. You in the wall? I'm in the wall. When did he put you in the wall? And can I tell you, the next generation is, I'm standing on Pastor Brett and what he has done and all that generation that I've come up with. And then this generation is standing on top of us and I won't be here. I'm going to disappear. But I want the next generation to be like, keep going. There's good stuff in you. I know. Because I remember what I got from God through the ones who got me here. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church or to watch video sermons, visit gracecovedc.org.